Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our HR forum on uh, on Tupi. Um, I have um, I have been advising on Tupi for uh, more than fifteen years. I know I look much younger than that, um, and I remember distinctly um, when I started that the law is in a state of flux. Um, it will become clearer as time goes on, and it will settle down. And I couldn't be um, I couldn't be more wrong, um, to be honest. So what are we going to cover during today's session? Um, firstly, I'm going to give a, a brief overview of 2P. And then we're going to look at the criti critical question, which is when does 2P uh, apply? Um, looking at some of the, the more recent cases, particularly in relation to the uh, service provision change test. Um, we're then going to move on um, and talk about the implications of 2P uh, applying. Um, before, we're going to talk about what's not covered by 2P, contractual arrangements, um, and then we're going to end on the, the future of 2P, uh, the government's consultation uh, paper. Uh, we're then going to have a short break, and after that we'll have a case study um, where we're going to deal with some of these issues. We're going to talk about some practical considerations. We're going to talk about ways of avoiding 2P. We're going to talk about some contractual considerations. So if you have time to stay for that, that would be great. I'm going to be assisted today with Virginia. She's a senior uh, associate with the group, uh, who I've left all the, the, the complicated issues uh, to deal with uh, today. <laughs> So, let's start off with an overview of 2P. Um, so, very briefly, 2P means that all staff transfer essentially on the same terms and conditions for certain exceptions, such as in relation to certain pension rights. And what does that mean? That means all rights, duties, powers and liabilities under or in connection with a contract of employment transfer across. 2P gives us a couple of practical considerations. The first is informing and consulting staff. The second is the obligation to notify uh, the uh, transferee in respect of employee liability information. There are implications that arise if you're thinking about dismissing staff or changing terms and conditions of employment, which Virginia is going to talk about. But the main thing to think about for this slide is that you can't contract out of 2P. You can do certain things... Um, to deal with the circumstances to prevent 2P applying. But what you can contract for is to deal with the consequences of 2P. The only exception to that is the right of objection. An individual can object in writing to a transfer, which essentially means they disappear without notice or the right to bring an unfair dismissal claim. It's actually quite rare, but that is a right the individual does have. So let's move on to um, the first key consideration, which is when does 2P apply? And the first point to bear in mind is that there are two tests for a potential application of 2P. There is a standard test, which has been with us since 1981, and there is a new, reasonably new test, the Service Provision Change Test, which was introduced in 2006. If either of the tests is satisfied, then 2P will apply. So let's start off with the standard test. Um, in terms of the standard test, what do we need? We need three key considerations, which are on the left-hand side of the start slide. The first is we need a stable economic entity, <coughs> which is more than a collection of assets. We need a transfer of that entity, and we need the economic entity to retain its identity following the transfer. So let's break that down into a little bit more detail. Um, in terms of a stable entity, there's quite a lot of flexibility. There was a case in 2006, um, the uh, Balfour Beatty and Wilson case, which said that uh, an entity is stable even if it, 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 it relates to a contract where you can't guarantee the nature of work. You might get a lot of work, you may get no work at all, 
that could still be regarded as a stable economic entity. And what that case said, actually the key consideration, the key consideration is whether the entity retains its identity. In order to assess that, you need to look at a range of factors. And these factors were set out in the case of a Cheeseman case, so they're known as the Cheeseman factors. And what are they? You look at whether buildings or movable property transfers. You look at whether staff are going to transfer, whether customers are taken over, the value of intangible assets. And most importantly, the similarity between the activities before and after the transfer. I should add another factor that the courts often look at is whether there is any cessation in the provision of the activities, of, um, maybe a period of time when um, a building is, is, is subject to a refit, when the activities stop, and the reason for that. So the courts have built on this over the years, and one of the most important cases was an ECJ case of Susan. And in that case, <coughs> the court said, in looking at the factors you have to work out which factor is most important to the nature of the business. So if it's an employee or labour-intensive activity, you look at whether staff are taken over. If it's an asset-intensive industry, you look at whether the assets are taken over, such as in relation to a bus company. But what Susan told us is you would normally expect staff or assets to transfer for the standard test to apply. Okay, so that's fine when you have a simple transfer. For example, if I have Williams digit, uh, widget makers in, in Burnley and I sell that business, it should be pretty obvious whether the standard test applies. But it becomes a little bit more complicated when there's an outsourcing. Because the new service provider may well say, and often they do say, look, I don't need staff, I don't really need assets, I'm going to just provide this service. And consequently, they can argue that 2P doesn't apply. So, what did the government do about this? <coughs> Well, it introduced the new service provision change test in 2006. And I've set out the key aspects of that on the slide. The service provision change test applies where activities go from the client to a contractor, where there is a transfer of activities between contractors, or where the activities are brought in-house. Now, there is no statutory definition of activities, and that's something I'm going to come on to. So what are the other conditions and exceptions? One of the most important requirements is that you need an organised grouping of employees which has as its principal purpose the carrying out of the activities. And again, on the next slide, I'm going to talk about what that means. In terms of the other conditions and exceptions, there must be an intention on the part of the client for the activity to be continued, other than in connection with a specific a single event or task of short-term duration. So, for example, providing security at the Olympics and only at the Olympics wouldn't be covered by the service provision change test, or they're actually providing longer-term advisory services to the Olympics over the four-year or eight-year period would actually be covered, at least accordance, in accordance with the guidance issued by the government. And the final thing to mention is that the service provision change test doesn't apply to the procurement or supply of goods. As to whether um, an activity just involves that, also involves a service, which typically these arrangements do, is... Uh, a factual test for the tribunals. So, what can we take from all this? Well, unlike the standard test, it would appear that there is no requirement for there to be a transfer of assets or for a, ma a majority or part of the workforce to be taken over. Let's have a look at how the cases have developed this over the recent years. <coughs> As I mentioned on the last slide, we need to look at the meaning of activities. All this revolves around activities transferring from one party to another. 
And we had a case on this, the Metropolitan Resources and Churchill case in 2009. And that said, the activities must be fundamentally or essentially the same as those carried out by the transfer or. So what does, this, what does this mean? Well, the cases have evolved over the last few years. It kind of started off with the OCS Group case and Jones. In that case, there was a change in activity. It was at the BMW Cowley plant, and they, we, they had a greasy spoon affair for the workers. And uh, the Germans took over and decided that they were going to have a healthy sandwich bar and salad bar type affair. And the question <coughs> is, was that a transfer of activities? And the court said, no, actually that's a wholly different operation in their view, and consequently 2P wouldn't apply. That was followed in 2006 by the Enterprise Management Services uh, case. In that case, the difference between the services before and after the the transfer, which were IT services, there was a 15% difference, plus the services were provided to a number of schools and there was a change in the number of schools. Even though these were relatively minor differences, which would typically apply in most IT contracts often apply, the court said 2P wouldn't apply. And indeed, the courts went even further in 2011 in the Northamptonshire healthcare case. In that case, it involved the, um, the, the treatment of vulnerable adults. And the court said because the incoming contractor was going to change the ethos in terms of how it looked after the adults, then 2P wouldn't apply. And we finish off with a more recent case, the, the Huke case, Um, which has recently uh, come out in the AT decision. And in that case, they said, if there is a substantial reduction in the amount of the services going forward, then that is is in itself a factor which could preclude the application of 2P. So what can we take from all this? Well, 2P is less likely to apply under the service provision change test. It is also open to mischief because an incoming contractor could say, OK, I know I need to do the same services, but actually if I change them a little bit, I can then argue 2P doesn't apply. I then don't inherit staff and liabilities, and I potentially can provide it cheaper. You need to watch out for that. The other key uh, consideration, which I mentioned on the previous slide, is that there needs to be an organised grouping of employees. So the question is, what does that mean? The guidance from the government says the employees need to be essentially dedicated. And we have a few cases on this. The main one is the Eddie Stobbard case. In that case, the uh, Eddie Stobbard operated a few shifts. And it happened that all the shifts, uh, all the people working on a single shift, worked for a particular client. And the business for that client was transferred. And there was an argument 2P applied. And the court said, no, 2P doesn't apply in, those situ- in that situation. The reason is that that arrangement occurred by accident. The staff weren't intentionally dedicated to those services and consequently 2P doesn't apply. So again, we have room for um, potential mischief if the staff aren't aren't dedicated and it's something to watch out for. Just a couple of further points. 2P won't apply if there's a change of client as well as a change of contractor. So in the building industry, if you've got a change of tenant and a change of uh, security operator, then 2P wouldn't apply in those circumstances. And the final thing to mention is there is no service provision exclusion. Uh, In the Ward Hadaway case, um, legal work for the uh, nurses union, as I recall, was transferred from one party to another. Um, And and they said potentially 2P could apply, but in that case they said 2P didn't, because in order for activities to go from one party to another, you would need not only for the legal work to transfer, but also for the work in progress to transfer that the solicitors were working on. Because that didn't transfer, that precluded the application of 2P.
So turning now to a concept known as fragmentation. And what we're talking about here is a situation whereby a service is divided amongst a number of incoming contractors. And the starting point is really that um, both under the standard test and the service provision change test, 2P can still apply if only part of a service is transferred. But um, we have an established body of case law now which tells us that where it is not possible to identify where the, the service is transferred from and to, it can be said that the service is fragmented such that 2P does not in fact apply. And um, the best example I think there is of this is a, a case involving the provision of a telephone helpline. And um, after retendering exercise, the telephone helpline was distributed amongst a number of incoming contractors. And the way that this worked in practice was when somebody phoned the helpline, their call was randomly allocated to one of the new providers. And what the tribunal said was, it was impossible to identify where the work provided from the outgoing contractor had moved across to. And because of that, 2P did not apply. And what we're seeing is that not only can fragmentation be an accidental outcome of the way that services are distributed, but also um, that clients are increasingly taking an interest in using fragmentation in order to deliberately avoid the application of 2P. Another scenario that we're quite often asked about by clients is offshoring. So um, does 2P apply where a service is being sent overseas? And um, unfortunately, we've got some pretty limited guidance on this from a 2008 uh, case in the Employment Appeal Tribunal, which is that of Hollis Metals. Um, and that case indicated that where there was a, a transfer of services to Israel, in fact, 2P could apply. And that leaves us with some pretty difficult practical problems, um, particularly in relation to collective consultation regarding redundancies. Um, and what I mean by that is clearly if you're sending a service overseas, you're likely to be left with a body of UK employees who don't have a job. Um, the legally compliant approach would be to do the transfer and then to collectively consult with your employees after the transfer date. But that means that they're going to stay on your payroll during the, the period of consultation and they're not going to be doing any work during that time. Clearly, commercially, that's a pretty unattractive scenario. Um, so what we find um, employers often do to get around this is that they take the approach set out as option one on the slide, which is that they do their consultation prior to the transfer date. And while that isn't uh, entirely compliant with the requirements of the consultation legislation, um, we think it, it does at least give the employer some useful arguments because an award for a failure to inform and consult is based on what is just and equitable. So if you do option one, you've at least got an argument to say that we've, we've made some attempts to comply with our obligations here. So moving on, let's have a look at some of the implications of 2B. I'm going to start off with the human stock the question, who's going to transfer? And this is typically a problem where you've got members of staff who spend a percentage of their time working in relation to the retained business and some of their time working in relation to the transferring business. Well, the question is, will they transfer? So let's break this down. The first point to note is 2P only applies to employees. Uh, so it doesn't apply to independent contractors, although note People may be described as independent contractors, but may in fact be employees by applying the appropriate test. The other thing to note is that independent contractors may themselves be employees of a personal service company, and that often happens. And if that's the case, then they can still transfer across by virtue of a series of transfers. They transfer to their personal service company, and then the service will transfer to the transferee. Temporary staff, or, or staff who are assigned on a temporary basis, are excluded. 
And there isn't really much in the way of case law guidance on this, but what you are essentially looking for are facts where there, it is clear there is a temporary exclusion, and it's clear that there a date or some parameters are being set as to when that would come to an end. For example, in relation to some sort of training arrangement, which was the subject matter of the, the, the Gale case. So the next question is, are the staff assigned to the undertaking so as to transfer across? And that's dealt with um, by applying a multifactorial test, which was set out in the Botsun case. And the multifactorial test involves looking at a range of factors, including the percentage of time spent, the title, the reporting structure, the uniform they wear. You weigh up a range of factors. But the point to bear in mind is it's not just time. If someone spends more than 50% of the time, yes, it's likely they will transfer. But by the same token, if someone spends 40% of the time on a contract, and that 40% is more important to them, or it's where they earn their fee earning, or it's the essence of their employment relationship, then they may still go across. So it's important you look at a range of factors. The other issue is, when do you make this assessment? Do you look at the three months before, or do you look at the day before? Well, the test is you assess it immediately before the transfer. It's what was happening the day before the transfer, or, or the, the very short period leading up to it. Um, and there is just uh, one case on this, the Clarisway Cleaning Consultants and Roberts case. Um, and that was quite an interesting case in that they had a, uh, a difficult, disabled employee who was potentially very expensive, who the company permanently assigned the contract shortly before um, the transfer happened. So they went over and they argued the transferee had to deal with that, which is what I call social dumping, and is actually a practice which is normally legitimate. But in this single case, they said, actually, no, it wasn't, because that assignment was fraudulent. Although I should say that's the only case on this and as far as I'm aware, no other cases have followed. So the, 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 the view, certainly my view at the moment, is you can still permanently assign people to a contract shortly before the transfer will happen. And in the recession, we've seen lots of people do that in order to dump staff on contracts, transfer them across, and to avoid redundancy costs or to get rid of people who really aren't up to scratch. So what can, kind of flexibility do the parties have here? Well, they do have quite a lot. First one is novation. If someone isn't going to transfer, but the parties want him to transfer, then you can deal with an offer and acceptance mechanism where the incoming contractor offers, offers them employment, the old contractor fires them. It would be an unfair dismissal, but arguably there would be very good mitigation. The second one is you can persuade the individual to object to the transfer, perhaps with an offer of re-employment by the outgoing contractor so that they don't transfer across. As I mentioned, the other way of potentially creating mischief or changing the situation is to permanently assign staff to or from the services. Although note you'd have to do that within the contractual terms. You would be looking for a right that allows you to do that. Typically um, that, is not, that is in place, particularly in the service industry. And then the final thing you might want to talk about is terminating staff either before or after the transfer. Although you, there are potential consequences which can arise from this, which uh, Virginia is going to come on to. So what transfers under 2P? Well, the starting point is that most li rights and liabilities associated with transferring staff will move across to the incoming party. Um, and that will include the breach of contract claims. So, for example, if somebody's owed a bonus prior to the transfer date but they're not paid it, then liability for paying that bonus does pass to the transferee. Similarly, um, if there is an act of discrimination which occurs prior to the transfer date, then liability for that also passes across. 
There are some things set out on the slide that do not transfer across. Uh, one of those is share option schemes. Um, and for obvious reasons, a transferee cannot be expected to replicate exactly the same share option scheme that was in existence prior to the transfer date. But the, the case on this, which is mighty, says that the, in that case there's an obligation to put in place a benefit which is substantially equivalent to that offered prior to the transfer. Um, another key point is that pension liabilities do not transfer across. Um, however, um, early retirement rights do transfer. Um, and the other key point on pensions is that if you have a right to receive a certain percentage of your salary paid into a pension scheme, then that right does also transfer across. So moving on to the vexed question of how to affect dismissals and changes to terms and conditions in the context of a TP transfer. In essence, if the reason for the dismissal or, or the change in terms and conditions is the, is the transfer itself, then it's not going to be lawful to uh, dismiss or, or make the change. If the, if the reason is connected with the transfer um, and it's not an ETO reason, and I'll come on to talk about ETO reasons, then that is also not going to be permitted. If you have a, an ETO reason, then you, you can potentially dismiss fairly or make valid changes to the terms and conditions. And if your reason has nothing to do with the transfer, then uh, you don't have a problem. So what is an ETO reason? Um, well, it's an economic, technological or organisational reason. Um, and generally speaking, most employers' reasons are probably going to fall into one of those categories. Um, the problem is that the test has a second limb, which is that the reason must entail changes to the workforce, and that means changes to the numbers of staff or the functions uh, performed by those staff. And that's the bit that is a bit more mm. tricky. Um, and the particularly difficult uh, aspect of this at the moment is uh, where you have a situation where staff are relocating, then that relocation in itself is not going to constitute an ETO reason. Um, so starting with d dismissals, um, unfair dismissal claims, you have to have two years service for anybody who's joined uh, their employer April this year onwards. Um, so anyone who hasn't got that length of service is actually it's not such of an issue. Um, if you dismiss somebody prior to the transfer date, um, then that uh, is likely to pass, the liability for that will pass to the transferee. Um, and interestingly, under this decision of the space right case, um, it was held that the dismissal prior to the transfer can be connected to the 2P uh, transfer. Right, so I think where we got to was I was talking about the space right decision. And um, the point here really was that there was this managing director um, who was heading up a company which was being prepared for sale. Um, and the powers that be thought that the company would be more attractive if they got rid of the expensive managing director before they sold the company. So that's what they did. Um, at that point, they hadn't identified who the buyer was going to be. Subsequently, the managing director said, well, I think this is an unfair dismissal um, because it's clearly connected with the 2P transfer. The employer said, well, no, it can't be because we didn't even know who we were transferring the business to at this point. Um, and the Employment Appeal Tribunal said that it was uh, a 2P connected uh, dismissal and therefore it was automatically unfair, even though no buyer had at that point been identified. So um, moving on to um, changes to terms and conditions and starting with the point that the gentleman was asking about before we were interrupted, um, which is harmonisation. So um, most commonly uh, employers want to make changes to terms and conditions 
um, in order to put their, their new employees on the same terms as their existing workforce. Um, the problem with that is that it is going to be connected with the 2P transfer and it, there isn't going to be an ETO reason and therefore those changes are going to be void. Um, and we have case law that tells us that even if you wait for up to two years after the transfer, then potentially those changes still could be held to be connected and, and void. Um, so it's not just a question of leaving a, a, a certain amount of time and then knowing that everything's going to be okay. Um, the way that we think it's best to get around this is to um, introduce the new terms and conditions on a gradual basis. When you're offering somebody a pay rise or a promotion, um, you make it a condition of, of, that, uh, of that benefit to the employee that they sign up to the new terms and conditions. Um, one thing I was discussing while we were downstairs, of course, is that you have to take a commercial view, and if employees don't know about, about uh, their rights under this, it's possible you might get away with making the changes, but they will be void. Um, and one particular point to bear in mind is that employees can cherry-pick. And what I mean by that is that if, they, if you get them to sign up to new terms and conditions immediately after the transfer, um, overall they're on a better package, everyone thinks that this is all resolved, um, and then further down the line the employee decides they're not very happy about the onerous restrictive covenants that you inserted into their contract, um, or they don't like the fact that you took away their enhanced redundancy payment, it is open to them to say that those detrimental changes are void and to still hang on to all the extra benefits they've received in the meantime, like their bigger bonus, their, better, their pay rise, etc. So um, if you want to entirely avoid that risk, the way around it is to ask employees to sign up to a compromise agreement um, at the point of a transfer whereby their employment terminates and they're immediately rehired on the new terms and conditions. And although we don't have any case law on how this works, we have, we're quite comfortable that that does, that does avoid the risks that I've described. Lastly, just on the terms and conditions point, um, there is this regulation in the 2006 provisions which allows employees to resign and claim constructive dismissal where um, in, as a result of a 2P transfer they have suffered a substantial change which has a, a, a material detriment um, and I'm talking here about a change to their working conditions. And so uh, the most recent case on this was a Bellio which involved some bus drivers who uh, were asked as part of a 2P transfer to move to a depot six miles down the road and for them that meant an, an increased commute of between one or two hours extra a day. Um, and they said that that was a, a material detriment to them. Um, and the EAT agreed with them. Um, and interestingly, um, it's not relevant in that scenario whether or not there's a relocation clause in their contracts because what we're looking at here is a statutory right which cannot be overridden by anything in the contract. Okay, so moving on to a few, um, or a couple of practical considerations. Um, informing and consulting and employee liability information. Uh, <coughs> even before our break, um, I wasn't intending to go into this in any more detail, and I'm not now. Um, so I'm going to just pick out a few highlights. What I would say is actually we've, we've produced a 2P guide that deals with these aspects in a lot more detail. So if you want a copy of that, it's an interactive guide. Uh, let me know after the session. But just to pick up a couple of points here... Um, the first one is looking at the penalty for failing to inform and consult. It's 13 weeks pay. It's 13 weeks pay at the salary level for the individual, so it's not reduced. It can be quite a sizable amount. And in deciding the penalty, the courts follow the principles in GMB and Susan, which, uh, Susan, which basically said, Susie Radling case, which basically said the courts apply um, the maximum unless there's a good reason not to. 
Um, but uh, particularly over the recession, we've seen the courts being quite lenient. Uh, I think there was a Woolworths case where they basically just had a call with lots of members of staff and the award was one or two weeks' pay. So employers are getting away with quite a lot of mischief uh, in that scenario. <coughs> the other thing to bear in mind is the, the employee liability information obligation. Certain information needs to be provided 14 days before the transfer. 14 days doesn't really help because if you're involved in a bigger outsourcing or tendering for business, normally you do that before uh, 14 days. Um, but what we do have is <coughs> some cases or the, the first few cases um, coming out on what happens if you don't comply with that. The penalty is an award which is just and equitable. Uh, we've got the profile security case on the slide. In that case, the information was provided two days. It was updated two days before the transfer. The cost to the incoming contractor was £40,000, and the amount of the award that the courts gave under the just and equitable basis was £40,000. So it's actually turning into a bit of a statutory warranty. It's much better to have contractual warranties than a statutory warranty, but there is protection there that is um, generally helpful. So the next thing is what's not covered by uh, 2P. Um, I've, I've set out on the side there are various aspects that aren't covered by 2P, both in, during the period before the transfer and the lead-up, the transfer itself, and also in relation to special arrangements such as post-transfer reorganisations. None of that stuff is covered by 2P itself. The main point to bear in mind, and I'll let you read this in your own time, is that there is no statutory indemnity. Um, rights, duties, powers and liabilities can transfer across from party A to party B, but the incoming contractor picks up those liabilities. They can't go back to the outgoing contractor and, and, and make an argument unless there is a breach of the employee liability uh, obligation. By the same token, there is no statutory apportionment. If there are bonuses that are due or there is a commission payment that's due, that will become the obligation of the incoming contractor. And that can potentially be very uh, expensive. <clears throat> so let's just briefly look at what sort of things you might want to include in your, your contract. And this is something that we'll deal with in a bit more detail in the case study. Um, on the slide, what I've set out is the common provisions that you would think about including for um, a simple transfer provided there is some contract in place. Um, so generally the transferor is responsible for any failure to inform and consult, subject to the transferee providing details of the measures in line with the information and consultation obligation. Um, normally the transferor has to, you know, to, has to avoid changes to personnel in the lead-up to the transfer, uh, and also terms and conditions of employment. The most common provision is the transfer or will be liable for acts and omissions that happen before the transfer. Any claims for discrimination or anything of that nature which are caused by the transfer or should be its responsibility. Um, and finally, in terms of the, the, the most common provisions, the responsibility for pre-transfer costs, employment costs, so some sort of apportionment provisions. The final two bullets in, in this subsection are really sort of optional. Often, the transfer or... Uh, may pick up responsibility of too many, too few, or inappropriate staff transfer. By inappropriate, I mean people who are not properly skilled or trained. Um, but also the transferor may pick up responsibility for post-transfer uh, reorganisation. For example, if there's 40 employees and the incoming contractor only needs 10, there may be some responsibility on the transferor to pay for that, subject to certain checks and balances. And the checks and balances... In, those in that situation is absolutely imperative. So what are the common provisions that you'll look for uh, from the transferee, the, uh, um, the, the incoming party? Um, as I mentioned, they need to provide details of the measures. You want them to be responsible for acts and omissions after the transfer, any liabilities they face, and also they're part of any apportionment provision. 
Uh, the last two bullets on, on that section are sort of optional. Sometimes there's a requirement on the incoming party to rehire staff or, as I mentioned before, to undertake some sort of uh, post-transfer reorganisation. The main point to bear in mind is that you can slice and dice these provisions in a million different ways. It's really up to the parties to decide what they want to do. But what I've set out on the slide in this section is a sort of typical transfer. Um, but what we are seeing, particularly because there is um, a greater risk that 2P won't apply, is the parties adopting what I describe as the blanket indemnity approach. It's a very simple contractual solution. It basically means if I'm outsourcing it, I will make sure no one comes over to the incoming contractor. But by the same token, the incoming contractor needs to make sure that at the end of the arrangement, no one, no one alleges that they transfer across. And if they do, then the party that receives the employees can fire them and um, the, 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 the outgoing contractor will have to pick up the cost of that. It's a blanket indemnity approach. Bear in mind, it can be very expensive to operate. It is fine if you can assign staff to other duties and responsibilities. But if you can't, then you'll have to deal with them. You may have to make redundancies. Those dismissals may be automatically unfair. And therefore, the cost of them can be very, very expensive. So the blanket indemnity approach can potentially turn into a time bomb. And it's something that we're seeing being adopted much more uh, frequently uh, nowadays. The final thing to mention is in relation to outsourcing arrangements. Um, and what I put on the side is what goes around comes around. The thing to bear in mind about an outsourcing arrangement is staff may potentially transfer from the transferee to an incoming service provider. So at the beginning of the arrangement, you need to deal with the, the exit provisions. So you have to oblige the transferee to pick up responsibility before the transfer and, and, and comply with its other requirements. And that has to be built into the original contract at the time the original contract is signed. And not only do you have to think about exit very carefully, it's imperative you think about exit in a legally enforceable way. Because what typically happens is the outgoing contractor is protecting the incoming contractor. And you need to find a legal mechanism to make sure that happens. And what we often find is that there is some difficulty with the contract. For example, the third party rights clause prevents the incoming contractor obtaining any benefit. And it's certainly something that you need to watch out for. Returning lastly to the future of 2P. Um, You'll probably be aware that the government has been looking at the TP uh, regulations as part of a wider review that it's undertaking of employment law more generally. And there was a call for evidence um, in which the government was essentially asking for the, the views of interested parties on the effectiveness of the 2006 regulations, particularly in, in bringing more clarity to, to people in understanding mm. when TP might or might not apply. And that call for evidence closed in January this year, um, and the government published its response to the call for evidence in September. And in its response, it acknowledged that um, it had received um, views about a, a number of areas of improvement, um, including that, that it was felt that uh, more guidance was needed on the service provision change test. Um, a lot of people were raising the point that um, providing information 14 days prior to the transfer date isn't, isn't good enough and it's pretty useless. Um, and that more guidance was needed on ETO reasons, and particularly in the context of a relocation and, and whether a, a relocation can in itself be an ETO reason. Um, and what the government said is that it's sort of taking that all on board and it's going to be issuing a formal consultation document in due course. Um, so essentially what that means is that we're likely to see further changes to the way that 2P operates. And, and uh, so David mentioned at the beginning of the talk that he's seen the continuing uncertainty about how 2P applies over the years. Um, and in light of what the government's now saying, I suspect that they may continue to be the case for, for some time. 